media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, as you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to John chapter 11. Again, we are still going through the book of Mark, but we are taking just a little diversion this morning. I don't do that often, um, but when God says, preach this instead, I, I hope th- that he finds me faithful in that. I just would hope that he would do it earlier in the week and uh, <laughs> instead of in the last moments of the week, but at least it's fresh. <laughs> um, as our country remembered the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on our country yesterday, uh, Many of the tributes mentioned acts of courage and bravery that filled that day. How men and women, those special responders, came from all walks of life, whether they were from the medical field, whether they were firefighters, whether they were police officers, that they responded. And one of the things that kind of came out in some of the stories, even told yesterday and remembered from 20 years ago, is that as they saw the towers come down and as they saw the destruction that awaited those people that were there, instead of running away from this suffering, they did what was so unnatural. They, they actually ran into those buildings to save lives. And we've heard heroic tales of that. And that's always amazed me. Now, you might say, well, that's their training. They've been trained to do that. Well, training might be a part of it, but... Folks, there's something so natural about leaving suffering to run away from suffering that's part of our innate human condition that it is not instinctual for us to run toward suffering. Even with training is one of those things we still have to overcome something. And so I think that those heroes that we spoke of 20 years ago and those heroic acts very much should be applauded and honored. The Bible says honor those things that are honorable. And so it was right to honor that. But I, as I listened to those stories yesterday, God really began to speak to me about how oftentimes when suffering comes to our own lives, when, when difficulty comes to our own lives, even for those that are firm in their faith and, and you've been following Christ and leaning upon Christ for all these years, there's sometimes those moments when we think, okay, God, where are you in this darkness? I know that some people have probably asked that in this whole COVID thing. It's been going on for way too long. They've probably said that in other matters of their lives when hurt comes and suffering comes, loss comes. And in those darkest and deepest nights that they say, God, where are you? So that's a part of our understanding that somehow when darkness comes and loss comes in our lives, that somehow God is absent from that. And yet the word of God would tell us just the opposite. See, sometimes we put our own nature, what is natural to us, to run from suffering. And sometimes we think that when we don't feel God, we don't experience God, when somehow loss comes into our lives, hurt, comes wonder and sadness and questions. I've mentioned to you many, many times before, the the book of the Bible that has more questions in it than any other book of the Bible, you remember? Job. (laughs) I mean, think about it. And, and yet, in the book of Job, with all this hard, all these hard things that are going on in his life and all the loss that he has, he has a lot of questions, and yet God does not run from those questions. John chapter 11 is a familiar story to many who have um, been walking with Christ and maybe you've read through the Gospels. It's the story of Lazarus. 
And it's the story of how Christ comes. And you may know the end of the story, but for, for the moment, can you go back and kind of, even though you know the rest of the story, that you would go and, and walk through that story with us today. Now, it's 46, 47 verses, so we're not going to be able to do every one of those. And so we're going to go through, and not to minimize, because we make much of going verse by verse. We want to make much of all the Bible. But because of time and because of wanting to, to get this one kind of solid, fluid kind of thought process going, we will be skipping through some of that. Uh, but I, I would highly suggest that even though we keep the scripture up here and we do that to aid you, that you would open up your phone, your Bible, whatever you have this morning, so that you could see those combining verses in there that we might have to skip by. John 11 tells us about some of the closest friends of Jesus. You know, when we look at the ministry of Christ, we do see that even in the 12 disciples, he's got these 12 that he has called out among all the, the men of those days and to follow him. And yet within that, we would see that there's this inner circle of three. John thought he was the most inner of the inner circle, <laughs> the most beloved. You know, so, so we see that this intimacy level with Christ does have levels. It doesn't mean that Christ loved some more than others, but there was some that experienced that intimacy even more in a profound way, in a actual way than others. And, and this family that we're going to read about today, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, were some of those most intimate of friends. You know, we were kidding a couple weeks ago that you know, that uh, we, we love everybody, and, or at least we're supposed to, and, and even Christians that we have this, you know, love for other Christians, that doesn't mean that we would want to go spend a week camping with them. You know, that there's some that we wouldn't mind that at all, and then there's others like, okay, I don't think that that would work out well. Well, here, these are people that Jesus could have camped with. And I use it because there's an intimacy in this relationship. This is where Jesus would stay when he was local. They had fed him. They had cared for him. I'm sure that they had encouraged him in times of, of, uh, of his own discouragement in the ministry. And, and so if you ever expected Jesus to play favorites, and, and I don't think that we can scripturally ever say that Jesus played favorites, okay? <laughs> but if you could expect that trait to be found in Jesus, this would have been the family that would have been at the top of the list. These are the people that truly, truly love Jesus. I would say that they are some among, among the most spiritual people on the planet at that time. And we know the religious leaders are not really obedient to Christ. They're not really open to him. We've seen that all throughout the, the Gospel of Mark. We've seen others that have come in simple faith. We've seen people like Zacchaeus and others come in, in a new faith. But these people, I, Mary and Martha Lazarus seem to be, from every indication, some of the most spiritual people, spiritually mature people, on the face of the earth. They know Jesus. And even Martha, even though she gets kind of a hard rap sometimes of, you know, you shouldn't have been working, you should have been like Mary and down on, and, and we understand that. Even the work that Martha was trying to do was out of the genuineness of her heart of just trying to serve Jesus. So I'm not excusing that over worship. I'm, I'm just saying even that was sincere and it was coming from a place where she just wanted to serve Jesus. This is a good family. Now I say all that because it's really, really important for us to understand this, that this is not just some family that Jesus came upon. There's an intimacy there. Because sometimes in the intimacy of our own walk with Jesus Christ, 
God, I know, I know I don't deserve anything better than anybody else, but in a way, kind of do you? <laughs> I mean, in a way, if you've been serving Christ, you've been trying to be faithful to Christ, you've been trying to, you know, you, you've paid some of the cost of carrying the cross. Isn't there a part of our humanity that says, you know, okay, God, you know, come on. <laughs> John chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. A family that Jesus truly, truly loves, that he's intimate friends with, spiritually mature people, and yet they experience deep hurt and loss. Verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, now, why does he give us this description? Because he wants us to know very much who this family is. Uh, there were a lot of Marys. It's probably the most popular name in the New Testament times. Mary was just a, as common as probably number one on all the list of, of female names. And so he really wants us to know who this Mary is. There's a purpose of him knowing that this is a family that has intimacy with Jesus Christ. He tells us about one of the experiences where she had poured out a year's worth of perform, uh, perfume on the, uh, and anointed the, the feet of Jesus. So he, this is a loving family. Now, why is it important? Because Jesus wants us to know here, I really believe that the gospel is trying to tell us, hey, you can love Jesus and still suffer hurt. And there's something in our human mind that says, okay, you know, like, do you think it's unnatural for a mother, on most cases, for a mother or father to hurt their children? I mean, do you think that that's an unnatural? When you see physical abuse, when you see different things like that, isn't there something that kind of goes off in your mind, goes, that's unnatural? That's not the natural mode. Because I don't know about you, but when Carly and I gave birth to our firstborn, it, it was one of those, there was something went off in our heart. We, we loved people before, and we even loved other kids. But all of a sudden, I mean, I'm not trying to make this like the Grinch, but somehow our our heart grew twice that size that day because there was a new element that he introduced to our lives that we had never experienced before. There's a part of this that we begin to, 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 to understand, and it's not understandable when we see somebody who doesn't have what we would consider this natural love for their children. And Guys, that can be transferred over to our thoughts of God. God, if you really love us and you really care for us, then, then really you're going to kind of keep make sure that there's borders around us so that, or as we pray as uh, sometimes, this hedge of protection. <laughs> and you're just going to keep that up so that harm cannot come to us. And so it can be completely devastating when harm comes to us. And our mind begins to go, okay, what did we do wrong? Jesus, do you not really love us? Or maybe even go to this strange place where, okay, God, are you just incapable of, of, of working that for good? Or, or kind of making that work out so that this harm wouldn't come to us? All kinds of different thoughts come to our mind. Not always bedded in the foundation of God's word, but these are natural thoughts that come. In the same way that when we see somebody that doesn't love their own child, we're going, that's unnatural. And it's hard for us to make that connection. And it's hard for us when we see people that love Jesus a whole lot go through suffering where it's kind of hard to make that connection. 
So from the very beginning of the story, before we get into anything, we begin to see this truth that you can love Jesus and still get hurt. See, they had a very Old Testament mindset. The Old Testament mindset, you do good things, you live kind of, you know, this way that honors God and God's going to bless you. What oftentimes we would call a prosperity gospel very much was alive and well in the Old Testament. You do bad things, God's going to get you. Do good things, God's going to bless you. And that's why they would equate so oftentimes things like leprosy and other things like that with sinfulness. I, I got poison oak this week uh, right out here in the front, <laughs> cleaning up those trees and everything. And uh, if we were Old Testament, some of you would say, you need to go cleanse yourself or get spiritual purity because God would not do that to you. And maybe you have leprosy and maybe this is the sign of your sinfulness. Well, I admit to you, I am a sinful person, okay? But that's not how it works. And we begin to see that that's not how it works. But they still believe that that's how it worked. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 45, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. But look what happens, verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, now look, he whom you love is ill. Do you see that? What did they know about Jesus and their brother, Lazarus? They know that Jesus loves him. Okay, not just because it's a song, not just because, you know, in theory, they know this truth. And so when they see Lazarus getting very, very sick, they send for Christ and they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. How many times does the gospel tell us right there in those three in those three verses that Jesus loves this family? Twice. Once with the intimacy, they know it enough for them to be able to say as the sisters, "Hey, you love our brother." We know this to be a reality. And then it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister in Lazarus. So if this is some figment of their imagination, if somehow they were just kind of understanding this. I mean, have you ever seen a 13-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl, and for some reason he thinks that she loves him? And she goes, no, just friends. <laughs> this isn't one of those false kind of illusionary things where in your mind you're going, she loves me. And she can't stand you. <laughs> That's not the case here. <laughs> they know that Jesus loves him. And the Bible tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus twice. Because one of the first thoughts that go when we begin to suffer loss, when we go through times of hurt and suffering, is that somehow Jesus doesn't love us. Now, we know that that's contrary to Scripture, and, and yet these synapses begin to fire off in our mind that somehow, I mean, we kind of go back to that prosperity gospel, that somehow, since we try to be good people and we love Jesus, that somehow bad things aren't going to happen to good people. It's a quandary to us. Even when we have Scripture that would tell us, and Jesus himself, hey, it rains on the just and the unjust. When suffering enters our lives, and it will, 
We have a hard time separating fact and fiction from our thoughts. One reason is because every other relationship that we have in the world, get this guys, every other relationship that we have in the world is based on performance. Even ultimately, our own marriage. Would you, would you say that ultimately, even though you love and you hopefully love with the love that Christ loves the church and you have this this supernatural love for, for one another in marriage, would you say that even then, taken to the extreme, that that is still kind of a relationship that's based on performance? I mean, if we were honest to ourselves. Is there an extreme that your mate could go that you'd say, enough is enough? Because we have that even in the most intimate of relationships, because that is an experience that we face every day where this work, even within the church, even within family, then sometimes we just kind of put that over to God. Well, God, if this is what we experience every place else, everybody else is like this, you must be like this. And if we're good, then God will do good things. And if we're bad, God allows bad things to happen. Another reason that we sometimes get confused and are not able to separate the fact and the fiction and the truth of the gospel is because we really have a hard time, even though the scripture talks about it all the time, separating the present from the eternal. Remember, we've always said that God wants us to have an eternal perspective. And yet our human nature wants that perspective and and it gets down to, you know, weeks and days and even the very moment that we live in. And God is continually trying to get, no, take an eternal perspective. And so we're in this quandary. So it is natural for us to begin to kind of fumble the ball here. And it is supernatural when we get it right. Now, what do I mean by supernatural? Mystical? No, the very spirit of of the holy God, the very truth of his word that in the darkest of night can bring hope. That's not natural. That is supernatural, enabled by a God who's gifted us with his spirit if you're a believer in Christ and he's given you his own self to dwell with you. Look how real this gets in verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Seems strange to you? He hears, and yet he does not immediately respond. In fact, he stays two more days. And we're really not given any evidence of anything that was pressing in the place where he says, you know, man, I wish I could fit him into the schedule, but I'm looking you know, at my schedule here, and I've got two days booked, and I've got to take care of it. We really aren't given any other thing that would keep Jesus from coming to Lazarus except for one thing that it is his perfect will. That somehow God's going to get glory out of this delay. These are Jesus' best friends. They fed him, they supported him, they've loved him, and yet he does not rush to them. Why? Well, the short answer is found in verse 4, for the glory of God. And while that may be the short answer, is that a sufficient answer for you? Maybe on some really good days it isn't, but other times it's like, I know it's all about your glory, God, but this is hurting. In fact, look at the conclusion that Mary and Martha both 
conclude in their own minds and hearts. Look down at verse 17 and 19. And again, I apologize that we're not going verse by verse, but we want to cover a lot of verses here. And I want to give you the the 35,000 foot view of this so that we can kind of encapture this whole story. But look at the conclusion that Mary and Martha both, somewhat separately it seems, have come to in their mind. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he finally comes two days later, he found that Lazarus Lazarus was already um, uh, been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Lazarus has died. The mourners have already begun to assemble. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that a statement of faith? I believe that it is. Maybe a statement of faith based on just human understanding. But Lord, I mean, think about what she's saying. Lord, if you'd been here, he he wouldn't have died. I believe that you're that, you are the Savior. You, you can make things stay alive. You can heal people. Well, Mary's the worshiper here. Maybe Martha is that worker, and so maybe she's just being very technical because she's a worker. What about the worshiper? What does the worshiper Mary say? Verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. It's almost like they're reading off the same script. Important question here, guys. Did these sisters have faith? Yes. They had faith that Jesus could have, would have, and dare I say, they thought should have saved their brother. Now, let's follow through that, okay? Let's go through that. I don't want to add anything to the scripture. But I want us to understand where our mind goes when hurt comes. We even see this in Martha's response. Let's make sure that we're being biblical about this. and We're just not thinking up and attributing different things to them. Look what the Bible says in verse 22. Does she have faith? Yeah. But even now I know, this is Martha talking, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's faith, folks. But herein lies the struggle of faith. Please hear this. Please hear this this morning. I take my could-haves and my would-haves and too often times I turn them into my should-haves. Have you ever done that? You have faith. You're a person that believes in God and you have this faith in God. And, and God, I know that you could have. In fact, if you were here, God, I mean, isn't this the assumption that they're making by their statements? You would have. And isn't there a little bit of an implication? This is where I'm kind of going out on the line a little bit. Isn't there a little bit of a should-have in there? Have you ever tried to connect the dots that it seemed God wasn't connecting quite yet? See, faith tells us that he could have. 
A faith in knowing the character of God says, okay, he, he would have. He's a good God. But it's that last little part that sometimes where we begin to struggle because this is our earthly faith. We begin to connect dots that God never wanted to connect for whatever reason. Well, no, there is a reason for the glory of God. But when I said that before, it was amazing to see your faces because I think you were being really real that sometimes the glory of God, as much as that sounds like the right church answer, when it means that you continue in suffering are Again, let's get as intimate as we can. Our children? Isn't there a part of it, guys, that you could? And if you were here, you would. And personally, God, I think you should. Again, Martha gets the big picture of faith. She doesn't have trouble here with the big picture. Look what she says in verse 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. That's good news. Look at her assumption. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Is that a statement of faith? Yes. She even gets big picture faith. But yet, she has to live in in a life of faith in the little picture. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. There's a Greek word there that talks about from the, from the bowels, from the innermost part of his being. He's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to them, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35. Jesus wept. Leads us to our second question this morning. That's a really important question. Why did Jesus weep? Why did he weep? It wasn't because he didn't get the big picture. Does Jesus already know that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Does Jesus already know that even if he didn't raise Lazarus here on earth, that ultimately there's going to be a resurrection for those who have put faith and trust in Christ? So he knows this. So he's not weeping over, man, this is out of my hands, or this is overwhelming me, or this is such a sad picture here. He knows the big picture. He even says that. Look at verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? It wasn't that he had a messed up plan or that he didn't have a plan. He has a plan and this is all for the glory of God. Verse 14 and 15. Now we're going backwards a little bit. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, this is what he's telling the the disciples. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Can you get it? Look at those words. For your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. How could Jesus say that? I thought he was this loving Savior. I thought we have this caring God. 
I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sake. What are you trying to teach us here, Jesus? He's trying to teach us that even big picture faith has to be lived out in the moment. So oftentimes, and remember we said that we live in the temporal and not in the eternal, but sometimes we get eternal truths and yet it's hard to take them into the temporal truth. Do you believe today that because you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that, that one day you will live forever in the eternity with Jesus? And, and yet taking that which is eternal in nature, the biggest thing that could ever be a part of us, do you sometimes struggle in your daily faith with the momentary moment? See, sometimes it's because we live in the moment and, and not in the eternal, but sometimes we get the eternal truth but we don't bring it back to the daily moment. John eleven thirty six. 36. I mean, Jesus is crying here. He weeps. Why did he weep? I believe because he had compassion on his friends. I mean, it was noticeable. Look at verse 36. So the Jews said to him, see how he loved him. There's two times in the Gospels that we see Jesus weeping. One is here. The other one is, uh, one of the accounts is in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 41, where he weeps over Jerusalem. And he weeps, and the same Greek word is used there, and it's from the bowels. It's from the most innermost part of Christ. And yes, for two different occasions. On here, it's because of compassion for this family. And that uh, when he weeps over Jerusalem, it's because of the lostness of the Jews. He weeps over that. They just, they've rejected him and they don't get it. And there's an eternal damnation that's going to come with this rejection. And he weeps over that as we should weep over somebody who's not following Christ and not trusting Christ. That should break our heart. And so we see Christ crying two different times in the gospel and they're extremely different circumstances. Here he's crying, not over the eternal damnation, not over the temporary pain. He's crying for one thing, because he loves these people and he hurts. And in Romans it tells us, Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. This is the beauty of the, of the church, folks. Hebrews 4, 14, 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is our hope, folks. When you find yourself in a could have, he would have, and you kind of jump over to that last thing, well, God, I really think you should have. shared with you before, that was the first words of my mom when my dad passed. 
She's a woman of faith. Had no doubt believing that God could. There's no doubt that God would. But everything within her heart at that moment said, God, you should have saved him from this cancer so that he could be by my side this day. Can you be a person of faith and still make that jump in our minds? Yes. Is God patient and kind to those who come to that conclusion sometimes in their... Yes. Does he scold Mary and Martha when they said, you know, if you would have been here... He doesn't say, well, just for that, forget it, I'm leaving. But what does he do? Verse 38, and this isn't going to be up there. If you, Again, I hope that you opened up your scriptures to see it. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone laid against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, now remember, Martha, who wants to be with her brother, what does she say? The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So even though he could have, probably would have, she thinks in her mind, I think, should have. But now it's like, you know, Jesus, no. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe Jesus would see the glory of God, that you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And we had said these things, he cried aloud with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What just happened here? Jesus took people of faith. I would probably say some of the most spiritually mature people on the face of the earth at that time. And yet they still struggled in earthly faith. And I believe that they truly did this could have, would have. I really think, God, you should have. And yet God had a different plan. In one way you say, well, you know, this all ended up good because God comes back at the last minute and now their brother is back with them. But could you answer this to me? Would God still be totally glorified? Would he still be totally amazing? Would he be still totally faithful and true even if he had not brought Lazarus back from the dead? The condition wasn't, okay, only God, if you do this, then you are worthy of my worship. No, God is worthy of our worship because he has given us that big picture of eternity. And I know when we're hurting in the daily that sometimes we just need a little bit more encouragement because we have earthly faith. And that's why it's a supernatural thing, guys, and not a natural thing. Because our natural mind will go to the conclusion, God, you are good if you do this. And the truth is, God is good no matter what. 
But that's a supernatural thing. Not mystical, supernatural. That comes from the Word of God and its truth. It comes from the very Spirit of God. And in the darkest part of our nights, folks, that's what's going to matter. That's what's going to matter. That's our hope. This is our Jesus. And so what do we do today? What do we do? We run to this Jesus. We run to the cross where it was all fulfilled, where he could truly say, it is finished. This isn't just a theory. This is actuality. I will die for you in your place so that all these things can be true. And this morning, that's what we do. We, we run to the cross. Daily we run to the cross. In the darkest of nights, in the biggest of despairs, in the most hurtful times, we run to the cross and we will find a sufficient Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for this amazing love that our Christ had for us, that he would die for us. But Father, if it had just been a death, that would have been one thing. But Father, he rose again. And that Father, that fulfilled every promise. Every promise became yes and amen in that finished work of our dear Savior. So, Father, today, I know that there are so many in our church that are wondering. They are people of faith. They're people that love Jesus, and Jesus loves them. And yet, today, they're struggling. And, Father, I can only imagine as it happens in my mind, that I go to a could have, would have, and somehow I want to fill in this should have. And I forget, God, that you do have a a plan to bring yourself glory. And it is a a plan that not only gives you glory, but it, it will be for our good and maturing. So, Father, in those days that we just cannot connect the dots, Father, help us to run to the cross. Let us run back, Father, and gain understanding in this beautiful act of love. We love you, Father. Build our faith even this day. And we pray all this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.